Maybe you've had the thought, no matter what I do, it's never good enough. Anyone ever feel like that before? Like, no matter how hard you try, it's not good enough. I remember trying out for the worship team when I was a sophomore in high school, and I was on bass guitar. I'd been taking bass lessons, and I was practicing religiously at home so that I could do the bass riffs that they wanted me to play. I studied the songs, and then I prayed at it. I, I did pray, but I played a night of impact with a bunch of my friends on the worship team. After I was done, they told me, hey man, we love you, but you just made way too many mistakes. And so, yeah, we don't think that you should be playing on the worship team. And that was it. And I stopped. I haven't played worship up until like this past year. Uh, so that was discouraging. Because what they were saying in effect is that who you are is not good enough to be rolling with us. Now, that's not to say that we're not going to aim for excellence. You know, if you can't sing, if you can't play, then it's probably not best to put you in front of 100 people. However, it'd be nice to have some encouragement, maybe like if you work on these things, you can try again, but there's none of that. It's just kind of like you're not good enough. And all my life, I feel like a lot of things that I've been trying to do was always trying to find out what is the one thing I'm good at, whether it was in photography or acting. I was looking for people to let me know that what I was doing was good enough. And if someone told me, good job, I didn't believe them. I thought they were lying to me and they're just being nice because they're my friends. So I'd rather people be honest with me and tell me that I'm not doing well so I can move on and find the one thing that I'm actually good at. Whether it's music, whether it's photography, whether it's acting, whether it's skateboarding, whether it's climbing, whether it's dance dance revolution, whether it was being a mechanic, whether it was doing computer programming. So all these things I had pursued in my life because I want to find what is the one thing that I'm good at. And maybe perhaps you feel as though that your skills or your efforts are not good enough in order to be useful to the kingdom of God. Maybe you feel like your good deeds are not good enough to be acceptable. Everything that you do, it just seems like it's subpar. It's not hitting the mark. And if we put ourselves in the shoes of Cain and Abel, a very familiar story to all of us. Now, where this was actually taking place, we're not really sure. All we know is it was, had to be taking place outside of Eden. There are some people that theorize that maybe that since the cherub is always in the presence of God, maybe there's the angel who is guarding the, the tree of life and that Cain and Abel were actually bringing it up to this angel to sacrifice. Whatever it was, the point is that Cain and Abel both brought a sacrifice and only one was accepted. And what's really interesting about that is when you consider what is it that made Abel's acceptable and made Cain's rejected. Because on the surface, it seemed like both of them should have been accepted. Cain was a tiller of the ground, and Abel was a farmer. That was their occupation. You can't ask for them to do things that they're not gifted to do. If Cain was supposed to be a gardener, then let him garden. He's not going to bring a sheep. And if Abel is going to be a person who's a farmer, you're not going to expect for him to bring some crops. So why is it that when Cain gives the, his little first fruits or whatever it was, the fruit and the vegetables, his crops, and then Abel brings a sheep, a lamb, whatever it was, placed on the altar, that one was accepted and one wasn't? Because on the surface, 
it seems like they both should have been accepted. Well, we know that God sees beneath the surface into the heart. God sees beneath the surface into the heart. Anytime you go to a good restaurant, a good restaurant always has one meal with a secret ingredient. They won't tell anybody. My favorite place to eat is a ramen shop called Ipido in New York City. And this restaurant, in order to eat there, you have to wait in line for an hour. I've, the most I've ever waited is two hours. They don't take any reservations. You wait in line for two hours at times to get into this restaurant where they serve ramen. It's not like cup of noodle ramen. It's the best stuff ever. And they make these things called Harada buns with a secret sauce that's like pulled pork that's kind of like chipotle and barbecued and wrapped in this bun with whatever it is. It's amazing. And so this restaurant doesn't let you take out food. You can't order takeout. You can't bring leftovers home. And they're really stringent. I had a friend who tried to bring leftovers out, and they are like stopping them at the door, and then they have to run like with it in their hands. And it's just crazy. They're just so secretive because they don't want someone else to get the product and be able to analyze it and make a comparable product. So there's a secret ingredient. And we have to ask ourselves, what is the secret ingredient in Abel's sacrifice? If on the surface it seemed like both should have been accepted, and in fact, I think you got one that's a bloody mess, an animal, and one that's fruits and vegetables. And it would seem like the fruits and vegetables are the ones that you want. But what was it that was the secret ingredient inside Abel's sacrifice? Well, if we look at the commentary in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it says this. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. You ever watch those cooking shows? I don't, but I assume this is what they do. You have the master chef who can always sniff out the ingredients that's inside your food. He knows exactly how much salt you put in, knows exactly what elements you put in to make whatever it is that you're making. And God is like the master chef that's able to determine exactly what you're bringing to him. When you bring your sacrifice of worship, when you offer your good deeds, when you offer your life, your works, God knows what's inside. God knows what your heart is that you're bringing to him, and what he's looking for is faith. That is the secret ingredient. That's what Abel had that Cain didn't. It was that he brought faith. Now, if you're a Bible student, you might look at that on the surface and just be like, okay, faith, and you just write, write that down in your notes. For me, since I'm a little bit more inquisitive, the thing that I ask is, okay, what about offering this sacrifice was a demonstration of faith. What is faith? The substantiating of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, right? Looking with your ears and not with your eyes. We walk by faith, not by sight. So what in the world does this mean that Abel offered this sacrifice in faith? Well, think about this. They were kicked out of the garden. The garden of Eden was perfect when God created it. And then there is Adam and Eve that were placed in the garden to rule over, to reign, to guard, to tend to the garden. And when they sinned, they were kicked out of that perfect garden. Now remember, 
something really interesting. When they were kicked out of the garden, God told them that there was going to be a promise. He made a covenant that one day Eve's seed would crush the serpent's head. And so that was the first uh, preaching of the gospel, the first message of the gospel that Jesus Christ would come in as the Messiah, the Savior of the world, so that they could be brought back into that garden. They could be brought back into that fellowship with God. Now, what's even more interesting than that is the fact that Eve names her son Cain, which means acquired. And so, even in that first verse, she says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Eve thought that Cain was going to be the one that delivered them from their sins. She expected Cain to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So talk about expectations upon your kid, right? And instead, Cain becomes what we know as the first murderer in the Bible, completely failing those expectations. And so the fact that Abel was able to offer this in faith meant that he was offering this sacrifice because he knew that where he was right now was not able to be the perfect example of worship because they were not perfect people. So this is what it means. It means that when he offered the sacrifice in faith, he was aware of the fact that one day that we will all be made a people who can give glory to God without one hint of sin or selfishness detracting from it. So what he's saying in essence is, I know what I have now, what I'm offering to you right now can never match your holiness because it's mixed in with selfish motives. It's mixed in with sin. It's mixed in with selfishness. But when I am complete in you, when that day comes that I'm made righteous, until that day, here's the best of what I do have. So what Abel was doing is he's saying, I'm offering to the, this to you in faith, even though I know that I'm not perfect right now because you're going to make me perfect one day. Think about this. When you worship, like when you worship tonight, how many of you were distracted? Don't have to raise your hand. Just be honest with yourself. How many of you were daydreaming, thinking about like the guy you like, the girl you like, thinking about what you're doing afterwards, who you're going to hang with? That's normal. It's normal to get those distractions. But when you get to heaven, there'll be none of that. You'll be able to worship God free from all distractions. You'll be able to worship God without any selfish ambitions, any motives tainting your worship. You'll be able to sing on key. You know, most of us is like, yes, finally. I don't have to be conscious about, self-conscious about how I sound. You'll be able to glorify God in the way that he deserves. And so Galatians chapter 5, verse 5 says, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So it's a, a little bit of the already and not yet. I'm already made righteous because I've accepted Jesus and his sacrifice, yet I'm looking forward to that day when we're all able to worship in spirit and in truth. Here's the thing that you got to know for this evening. This is what this entire message is about. God is seeking true worshipers. God is seeking a people that will worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's what it says in John chapter 4, verse 23 through 24. 
When Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well, he said, The hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You see, God is looking for people that are not just going to offer the things that they do, not just do good deeds, because if that was the case, guess what? He could have made a world entirely made up of robots. If God just needed people to take care of the land, if God just needed people to do good deeds and do things, he could have just programmed things that would do what he wanted them to do. But he wanted people that were in love with him out of their own free will. When God created you, he created you with the ability to sin. Not that he wanted you to sin, but he gave you the free will ability to choose life or choose death, to choose his will or choose your own will. And he wanted a people that would love him of their own volition. And this is why he speaks in the parable of, uh, the, the, parable of the great pearl of great price and talks about the treasure in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Jesus said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. God is looking for people that are just so in love with him that that's what they're doing. They think about their lives as an act of worship and obedience as a way to give glory to God. This is why Samuel said in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, has God, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. You see, all throughout the Bible, it's not been about following the rules. Following the rules is just one part of it. But it's about worshiping God because you love him, because you seek him, because you, you want to know him more. And in doing that, that is what gives you joy, and that's what gives God the most glory. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. You see, all throughout this chapter, it's all about worship. It's not about getting the deeds done. It's not about like, okay, God told me I'm supposed to offer sacrifice. He told me I'm supposed to go to church. He told me I'm supposed to read my Bible. I'm supposed to be in fellowship, whatever that means, be praying. It's not about making up a checklist and doing all these things because you have to. It's doing it because you truly find the joy in doing it and in serving the God that you love. So what does it look like? What does it look like to worship him in spirit and in truth? Well, God's intention from the beginning of time. Notice, notice this. When God created the world, he created a good world, but it was not the best of all possible worlds. Why? Because the world that he created was a good world where people were self-prone and able to sin. And through this world, people are able to, against the backdrop of sin, choose the Lord so that in the next life, we're going to be in the best of all possible worlds. And this is why. Because it's a world filled with perfect people that are serving the Lord out of their own volition, without any hint of sin or destruction to muddle it up. So when we ask ourselves that first question, is what I'm doing good enough? 
we must ask ourselves two further questions. If you're like me, and you're always thinking about, like, is what I'm doing useful? Are my gifts useful to the Lord in act of worship? Are my deeds good enough for the Lord, acts of obedience? We have to ask ourselves two questions. Number one, good enough according to whom? Good enough according to whom? You and I are constantly rating ourselves by the wrong value system. We're constantly evaluating ourselves based on the world standards. And we say, oh man, I'm just, I'm not a good singer. I'm not like that person. As if, in order to worship God in spirit and truth, you need to be the best of all possible singers. You think things like, oh man, I would, I would love to serve God, but you know, like, no one finds me attractive. I'm fat. You know, I'm, I just don't feel like I'm a person that anyone even wants to talk to. I'm not popular. As if popularity is a measure that God is looking for when he's taking your sacri- the sacrifice of your life. He's looking at it and saying, well, if you're better looking, maybe I could use you. In fact, what we see is God takes the value system of the world and flips it completely upside down. If you look at history, as people were worshiping the gods, whether it's mythological gods like Zeus and Hermes and, and Greek mythology, the reason why people worshiped Caesar and the emperor is because they thought he was the closest to God and he was a descendant of the gods. And so you would worship the emperor and you would give him glory because by doing that, you could have favor with the gods themselves. And so in order to be heard by God and have your wishes carried out, you had to do all these different things. You had to be a prominent person. But when Jesus came into the world, he didn't come into a palace. He was born into a manger. He didn't appear to kings. He appeared to shepherds. And when he was on the earth, he didn't reveal himself to the rich. He actually said how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And instead, he gave himself to the poor. He didn't hang out with the Pharisees. He hung out with sinners. Because you see, what he was saying, and he said this. He said the, the kingdom of God is actually built for children, not adults. So if you think that you're a person who's not qualified for the kingdom of God, you're actually closer than the person who knows the Bible inside and out. And it's because you recognize that God has to come to you, not you coming to God. It's God who seeks you out. You are not looking for God. None of us were, but God, out of his love, he came down into our world and chose to love you and I and pick us for his kingdom. We look at stories all the time and think about like how romantic it is when the king falls in love with a peasant girl. Well, we are that person, the nobody who's brought into royalty because of God's love for us. So we can't buy into the wrong value system. The second question is, what is my motivation in doing good? What is my motivation in doing good? When we're asking ourselves the question, is what I'm doing good enough? Good enough for whom? And secondly, what is my motivation in doing good? Ask yourself, is your sacrifice the thing that you're offering to God, is that an act of worship or an act of obligation? An act of worship or an act of obligation? Because if it's an act of obligation, you will always do the bare minimum, just like your homework. 
because you have to, you go on the Spark Notes, you cheat, you copy your friend's answers, you do the bare minimum. But if you, have, if you fall in love with math, you fall in love with chemistry. Like I have a friend who's just got his PhD in chemistry, and he like loves to talk about polymers. I'm not even sure what a polymer is, but he's in love with them. When you're in love with something, you spend all of your time chasing after that thing, and you go beyond what's required of you because of the love that's your motivation. And you see, there's something in this in that the Bible says that Abel, in verse 4, brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. The firstborn, the best of what he had. He was saying, in 